So good evening, everybody. Welcome to the second instalment of our mini series on Usher syndrome. So Retina UK have collaborated with Usher Kids UK and Cure Usher to deliver these two sessions on all things ushers. If you missed the first webinar, you can watch it on the Retina UK YouTube channel. We're really pleased to have with us this evening, Professor Maria Mutagin from uh, University College London, Moorfields Eye Hospital and Great Ormond Street Hospital. Chloe Joyner from Usher Kids UK and Kate Arkell from Retina UK. This, we re this webinar uh, will look at all things um, Usher syndrome, um, looking at the science behind it, the current research into what the potential treatments may be um, and some clinical trials. So we're really keen for you to be able to ask your questions this evening. So please type any that you may have in the Q&A section at the bottom of your screens. These questions will be asked by the team on your behalf. You can leave your questions throughout the presentation. Um, and as I say, we will, we will ask them for you. Uh, whilst we'll endeavor to answer as many questions as we can, um, any we're not able to get to um, today will be followed up over the next couple of weeks. So thank you again for joining us. And without further ado, I'm delighted to introduce our first speaker, Maria. Thank you so much, Matt. And thank you for everyone for joining tonight. I know how hot it is. Um, I, I hope you enjoy the talk. Um, I've tried to compile all the latest research for you over the next 45 minutes. Um, and as Matt says, very happy to take questions at the end. So um, I was asked to split this talk into three main areas. So the first part that I'm going to be speaking to you about is the main areas of research that are underway at the moment. Then how can individuals with Usher syndrome participate in research? And finally, I'll touch upon what can the patient community do to help accelerate progress? So as you've all heard in the last session, there are three main types of Usher syndrome. I'm not going to go into the three, but suffice to say that there are uh, around 11 genes that are known to cause Usher syndrome. And most of these genes are actually quite large genes. And so with large genes, there are challenges and I will explain that um, in due course. And most of the treatments that I'm going to focus on, well, all of them today are very much focused on the eye uh, problem. So retinitis pigmentosa and the treatments and the, and the new therapies that are in development that can hopefully slow down that progressive sight loss that, that patients experience. And I'm going to divide the, the research into therapies that are focused on particular genes and those that are more focused on retinitis pigmentosa, irregardless of the gene that is causing that condition or mutation. So we call these more agnostic therapies. Before I go into the latest research, I just want to give you an overview of what I mean by clinical trials, because there are various stages of clinical trials and research. So there is what we call preclinical research that is very much about the bench, the lab science in a laboratory, for example, in my lab at UCL, how we're working on animal models or patient cells to develop treatments. So that's preclinical uh, research. 
once we have enough evidence that those preclinical um, therapies may be working, we then think about translating those to our patients. And to begin with, we have to start with a phase one clinical trial. So a phase one clinical trial is all about safety. It's checking that that new therapy or surgical technique is safe in general, and it's not going to cause harmful side effects, not just in the eye, but outside the body. And so, for example, if it was a drug treatment, usually we would take maybe 10 to 20 patients. By the way, the numbers on my slides are, are hugely exaggerated. So uh, for those of you who are listening, it's about 10 to 20 patients. They may be normal, healthy individuals that are given the drug to see if it causes any side effects. So do they start vomiting? Do they have allergic reactions? Do they get heart problems, kidney failure, anything like that? So it's just generally checking if it's safe. If, it's a, if it involves an intervention like a, a surgical treatment, like a, an injection into the eye, for example, then what we do is we take, again, 10 to 20 patients but who have very, very poor vision. We're talking about light perception or perception to light vision. And we would deliver that intervention to the eye. And again, we would look for safety. So did it cause any other problems in the eye, like a retinal detachment or a very red inflamed eye? Did it seep into the rest of the body and cause, you know, a rash or sickness or diarrhea or something like that? But they, they, those trials are conducted on usually patients with really, really poor vision because we're not looking at trying to rescue vision at that point. We're just trying to see if it's safe. If we found that it's safe, we then move to a phase two clinical trial. And this is where we take, and the reason my numbers are much lower than the numbers on, on the slide is because we're talking about a rare disease. We're talking about Usher syndrome, which is extremely rare. We don't have hundreds of thousands of patients at our disposal to, to test these treatments on. So our numbers for rare diseases are much smaller. So we would take maybe about you know 50, 50 patients who have a level of vision and we would give them the treatment. We would continue to monitor for safety, but we would then also start to look to see if there was an improvement in their vision or if their vision was stabilized. So that's a phase two clinical trial. If we got evidence from the phase two that the drug or the intervention was having a positive effect on their vision, i.e. stabilizing the patient or an improvement in vision, we can then move to a phase three clinical trial. And phase three trials have a lot more patients, maybe a hundred or more, again, with good usable vision, and we deliver the intervention or the drug. We're continuing to monitor safety throughout, but we're then getting enough evidence on a large enough population of patients that this intervention is actually beneficial for these patients. If after that trial, we do get that evidence, we would then apply to our regulatory bodies. So that would be NICE in the UK. It would be um, the European Medicine Agency, uh, the Food and Drug Administration in the US. And we would ask them if this could now be a treatment that we could give our patients on the NHS. They would assess whether or not the, the drug or the intervention is cost effective, if it's actually worth 
giving to a patient because it's having a, a significant difference. And then if it's given approval, that's when it becomes a treatment and it's approved and we can then prescribe it almost to patients. Now, there's something called a phase four clinical trial, and that's usually after drugs um, have been um, approved. And it's just continuing to um, monitor the patients long term to look for any you know, long term side effects um, or to look if, for example, the drug loses its um, uh, efficiency or if it continues to have a beneficial effect. And that can go on for you know, X amount of time. Now, at the moment, most clinical trials are sponsored by industry, so pharmaceutical companies. And often people say, well, how long are these trials going to take? Well, a, a phase one trial takes around, you know, maybe one to two years. Uh, a phase two trial can take, you know, two to three years, maybe, sometimes a bit longer with Usher syndrome, we know that the, the retinal degeneration is relatively slow. So sometimes we need to follow patients for maybe two years as opposed to a year. And then there's a, a period of data analysis. A phase three, again, can take you know between two to five years. But it's very much in the hands of the company and it's very much commercially driven in these circumstances. So often I get asked, well, why, why can't we do this? Or why haven't they pushed forwards? And a lot of it's not always because the drug is worth trying out. It's It can be due to their financial constraints. Um, but that's essentially the framework of, of clinical trials and, and, and the research process. So as I mentioned, I'm going to talk about gene and mutation specific treatments initially, and then move on to more agnostic therapies. So looking at how we can treat common disease pathways. And I'm going to go through various different trials, some that have just finished, some that uh, are underway currently. So you get a real up-to-date um, overview of, of what the landscape is, all relating to uh, ushers. So um, before I start, I'm going to just play this really short animation. Some of you may have seen it, but I created this for uh, public engagement, just so people understand the concept of gene therapy. So I'm going to play this video now for you, and hopefully, uh, you'll all be able to hear. Gene therapy for genetic eye disease. Genetic eye diseases are caused by spelling mistakes in our genetic code, also known as our DNA. They change the instructions and prevent normal healthy protein being made, which leads to disease. Gene therapy packs correct copies of the gene into delivery vehicles called vectors. The vectors are injected into the jelly of the eye called an intravitreal injection, or under the light sensitive layer, the retina called a subretinal injection. The vector then releases the gene into the cell the cells can then produce healthy protein and can work better for longer. Gene therapy oh, for genetic eye disease. There we go. So, so there haven't been many gene therapy trials, um, especially relating to ushers. Um, you all have heard of the success with the Luxterna or it's 
trade name, which is uh, Voretogene Napavovac, um, which is an approved retinal gene therapy on our NHS for a gene called RP65. That still remains the only approved gene therapy. Since then, there have been a few failed gene therapy trials. Um, the only one specifically for ushers was one back, uh, well, it, it ran between 2012 and 2019, um, and it was for Maya7A, uh, Usher syndrome type 1B. And essentially, they used a vector, uh, a viral vector called the lentivirus to package the Maya7A gene. And then they delivered this to the retina through a subretinal injection. Now, this trial was terminated prematurely. Um, and although it isn't completely fully reported, uh, it was thought that there were safety concerns uh, relating to the use of the lentivirus. Now, I say the lentivirus uh, just for, for context. Luxterna, the gene therapy on the NHS, uses a different type of virus called the adeno-associated virus. And this is the, or we call it the AAV virus. The AAV virus is like the common cold. Um, it's quite deep, it's kind of deactivated and doesn't cause such a strong response. Whereas the lentivirus is more, it causes more of an immune reaction. And so we try to steer clear from this type of viral vector. That was really the main reason that um, this trial failed. So I was searching the literature, searching the web last night, um, trying to be thorough with this. And I came across that um, there was a six million euro grant awarded by the European Commission uh, in 2018 for the development of um, another gene therapy for Maya7A, but this time using the AAV vector, but something called a dual AAV vector. Now, the reason that uh, I use the word dual AAV vector is because virus vectors can only hold genes of a certain size. So the AAV vector can only hold a gene that is 4,700 letters in length. And the Myo7A gene is about seven and a half thousand letters. So it, the whole of the Myo7A gene would not fit into a single AAV vector. Hence, what they've done, or in this grant, what they're hoping to do is cut the Myo7A gene into two bits, package them into two separate AAV vectors, and deliver those to the retina at the same time. And then when it tries to produce the first part of the protein and the second part, it would join up and produce the whole of the Myo7A protein in the retina so it can work. Now, um, I again, I, I looked for updates. There isn't a clinical trial yet underway. Um, and the latest update from December 2021 was that they were at the stage of testing this um, system in um, monkey retinas. So we'll have to see how far that goes, if it's safe, if it's working, but it's not at the stage of human translation yet. So I've just I've told you that the problem with viral vectors is that they have a limitation in the size of the genes that it can hold. Um, plus, they're a virus and viruses cause immune reactions. 
And we know from our experience of the Luxterner trials that actually up to 20% of patients develop an immune response. Their eyes become red, inflamed, and patients have lost vision from this. Um, so we have to be very careful when we're using this and we give our patients steroids before, during, and after the surgery. Viruses also have the uh, potential to integrate within our own genetic code and therefore can introduce new mutations. Now, the AAV virus doesn't do that, um, but other viruses could. And again, it's just something to be very mindful for. The big issue is, as I said at the start, that most Usher genes are way bigger than the carrying capacity of viral vectors. So we need to think of another way of delivering these genes back to the eye. So an area that I work on is called non-viral gene therapy. And the work that I'm going to just present in the next few slides was really very kindly supported by Retina UK. So these non-viral gene therapy essentially is our own human DNA in a circle, and it can carry a gene of any size. So it can carry parts of your chromosome. It has been shown to carry a gene that is 135,000 letters in length. Um, the USH2A gene, the most commonest cause of type 2 ushers, and the most commonest genetic cause of usher syndrome overall is 16,000 letters in size. Um, USH2C is caused by the ADVRG1 gene. That's 19,000 letters. And as I mentioned, the Myo7a gene is 7,000. So these are really big genes. But this non-viral gene therapy can package those genes. They can fit into these, these uh, non-viral plasmids, or, or well, I call them a plasmid, plasmid vector. Now they're composed of entirely human elements. So it's presumed that there is a, a much less strong immune reaction because there are no viral components. Um, and they do not integrate within our DNA. They sit alongside our genetic code and they produce the gene. And they've got this special um, pattern or motif called a scaffold matrix attachment region that basically helps these um, vectors bind to the part of the cell that is controlling gene replication and production and it allows it to give it the stability so it can produce the gene for, for long periods of time. So what we did initially is we took the USH2A uh, gene, we had to cut it into five pieces and piece it together like a jigsaw. And then we checked the whole of the 16,000 letters and they were all correct. So then we had our vector and uh, we took our zebrafish model. So we had created uh, a zebrafish with an USH2A mutation. So it had type 2 ushers. And we did that using gene editing. And we characterized our zebrafish. And we found that when we looked at the retina of these zebrafish, that the light sensitive pigment, which helps convert. So when light enters the eye, it hits those light sensitive cells, the photoreceptors. And in our rods, the rods are what help us to see in dim light and um, our field of vision. We have a light sensitive pigment called rhodopsin and it gets stimulated and it converts light energy to chemical energy, which then passes through the retina, through the nerve to the brain and helps us to see. And when we looked at our zebrafish, we found that the, the light sensitive pigment wasn't located to the right place 
in our photoreceptors. And we also found when we looked at really high resolution that there were these, there were the, almost like these Pac-Men, uh, kind of these eating machines, an aggregate of them in the, the light sensitive cells in certain parts of the cells, because basically the cells had been congested with the light sensitive pigment and it was trying to break it down because it was so clogged up. And in doing so, the cell began to destroy itself and started to self eat and to destroy itself. And that was the process that we know occurs to lead to the retinal degeneration in our retinas when we suffer from uh, retinitis pigmentosa. So we, we tested uh, our vectors in the zebrafish. We also tested um, the, the vectors in patient skin cells. So some of the patients that I've seen in my clinics have very kindly donated skin samples over the years. And we've been able to um, grow those skin cells and also convert them into very early retinas in a dish. And a lot of the work we've been doing over the last few years is um, testing these vectors in the skin cells and also moving into um, confirming that they work in these early retinas. And what we found was that when we injected our zebrafish with um, the, the vectors, that we saw uh, uh, the usherin protein, USH2A gene was producing its protein in the light sensitive cells, but it was also producing it very nicely in our patient's skin cells. And this just is a picture just showing where, if, if for those of you who can see, there are these bright green cells. And that's actually where the usherin is being produced in the retina. And we saw these um, uh, cells up to 12 months in the zebrafish eye. And interestingly, when we looked at um, the retina in a lot more detail, the usher genes and their proteins form a complex. They basically bind to one another in the photoreceptors. Um, and so uh, the ADGRV1 um, protein, which causes uh, usher 2 c and whirlin, which causes um, USH2B, they all form a, like a, like a little um, complex with the USH2A protein. And if the USH2A protein isn't there because of a mutation, then these other proteins do not uh, localize to the correct place and form that complex. They just haven't got their jigsaw pieces to, to bind to. So when we then delivered our um, vector to the retina, we then found that those other proteins fitted into the jigsaw once again and started to uh, work in the correct place showing that by delivering the USH2A gene and producing the protein, you could get normal function restored again. Again, in the patient cells, we saw high levels of um, usher and expression when we um, delivered the vector to these cells. Um, and we saw that even when we divided the cells and they had daughter cells, the gene and, and the usher and protein were still being produced after many, many cell divisions, which shows that once they're in the cell, they divide with the cell and they produce the protein um, in, in, a, in a very nice manner. 
as a separate experiment, we injected mice with these vectors and uh, we looked at the eyes up to a year after a single injection under the retina, like we do with patients. And we found that the uh, there was gene expression up to a year. And so this is all pointing in the right direction that this technology works really nicely, but we just need to um, validate it in, in slightly higher models because zebrafish and mice are fine, but actually what we need is something a little bit more comparable to um, humans. And so our next phase is uh, a collaboration with Dr. Yanis Polis and uh, Dr. Don Shang Yang at the University of Michigan, who have actually created a rabbit with um, type two ushers caused by USH2A mutations. And so our plan now is to try to deliver uh, these vectors to the zebrafish retina, uh, sorry, to the rabbit retina through a subretinal injection and to see if it actually can help to restore the retina, its function and produce enough of the protein. At the same time, we also want to test the delivery of these um, vectors in a pig model, because again, the pig is got a very similar eye to our patients. We want to know if it's safe, if it evokes an immune reaction, if it is actually producing um, enough of the uh, gene, do we need to think about better ways to get it into the light sensitive cells? So this is all new work that moves on from um, the last piece of work. And then if we can complete this, we're hoping that then we will be at a stage where we can then get to that phase one clinical trial in patients. Just to say that this form of non-viral gene therapy is highly applicable to all large Usher genes. So although we're using Usher2A, we've also done similar work with a smaller gene, not an Usher-related gene, but another inherited retinal disease called choroideremia, and it's working beautifully there. But this is a situation where we could insert in any of the Usher genes and see if it had a similar effect on similar disease models. So it's highly applicable in the future. It's got great um, potential in view of the limitations of the viruses that are um, being used. And one slightly concerning thing that is starting to emerge from the Luxterna trials on RP65 is that about nine, six to nine months after the injection of the gene therapy, patients are now getting thinning of their retina so their retina and the uh, area just underneath the retina, the choroid, which is the blood supply, is actually wearing away. And it's so that the term for that is something called chorioretinal atrophy. And we've started to see it in a number of our patients and, it, and they've actually termed it drug-induced chorioretinal atrophy. So it's just something to say that we don't, this is why we have to continue to monitor patients. Even if something's approved, it doesn't mean it's a fail-safe we have to make sure that in the long term, these therapies are safe um, and that we have to think about alternatives just in case we start to come up with problems that we weren't expecting. But all of this works needs funding before it can move forward. So, you know, you'll hear at the end at some stage, what can patients do? Please fundraise because we do need your help. Otherwise, this work will just um, stagnate. So other mutation-specific therapies, um, I'm going to talk about nonsense suppression therapy, RNA therapy, and gene editing next. 
So nonsense suppression therapy is another area that I've worked on in the past. Um, this is particularly for a type of mutation called a nonsense mutation. And essentially, this is where a single letter in your genetic code changes to a different letter and it introduces an abnormal stop signal in your gene. So when your protein is or when you're trying to produce the protein, when it sees that abnormal stop, it just stops. It doesn't produce the protein anymore. Um, and there's a nice schematic, but I'm just going to talk through this. So in in a normal situation, you've got your protein making machinery and your RNA. Your RNA is your instructions from your DNA. So you've got DNA, which is, you know, 3 billion letters, 20,000 genes, and it produces when it needs to instructions of certain genes. Those instructions are RNA and your protein making machinery reads your RNA and produces a protein. Now, if you've got a nonsense mutation, which introduces that abnormal stop, when your protein making machinery is reading your RNA and it sees that abnormal stop, it just stops. It doesn't make any more protein. So you get this shortened non-functional protein. But there are now drugs where in the presence of the drug, it actually weakens the recognition of these abnormal stop signals and it can override it, basically changing, I like to say, a red traffic light into a green traffic light and it can produce normal healthy protein. Now, these drugs have been tested on lots of inherited retinal diseases um, and including Usher syndrome. And a group in uh, Germany have done a lot of work on this because around 30% of mutations for ushers are what we call nonsense mutations. And they showed that if you dose the cells with these um, drugs, that you could actually produce usherin, which was enough to actually rescue uh, the disease and slow the degeneration down. The problem has been getting access to this drug. And uh, again, a lot of you on this call will be like, yes, we might have heard you say this about five years ago, Maria. But at last, I actually have some good news. So um, the company, PTC Therapeutics, have actually, well, verbally pledged to give uh, atelurin, one of the really, it's a very safe drug. You give it orally, you have to dissolve it and drink it three times a day. Um, for 10 USH2A patients. So at the moment, we're going through the formal application. It's going to be what we call an investigator-led trial. So I shall be running this trial as a phase one, two trial at Moorfields. Um, and we need, to, again, to raise funds for this study, but we're hoping that if we can show proof that it works in these Usher patients, that the company will then run a full-on phase three trial and it will be applicable to a lot of other inherited retinal diseases. Now we come to the big one. So RNA therapy and the ProQR trial. So ProQR, and you would probably all have heard of this company at the moment because they are running a clinical trial at the moment for patients who have a mutation in a particular part of their gene, exon 13. Now, what happens with this treatment is that um, they are injecting RNA into, well, they're injecting a short strand of uh, letters 
uh, DNA letters into the eye that binds to the RNA, the instructions of the USH2A gene, and it cuts out uh, subunit 13, which holds a lot of common mutations in there. And so then what happens is, if you can imagine it, it cuts out the subunit 13. Now, USH2A is a big gene. It's got 72 subunits. So it cuts out 13, and essentially it produces the protein, but without that particular subunit. Now, this company have already done a phase one and a phase two clinical trial, which showed uh, that this drug was safe. It's short acting. So you have to have repeat injections every six months. Um, but um, it has shown, at least in the phase two clinical trial, that there was some improvement in patient's vision or stabilization in the treated eye. And so now they have moved on to a phase three clinical trial. So um, what they're hoping to do, and they've already started this trial, is they want to recruit 81 patients. The criteria is that an individual has to be 12 years and older. Um, they have to have that mutation in subunit or exon 13. And uh, if you have that mutation and you qualify in terms of you have a vision that is within the requirements, and for those of you, this is a ballpark. We're looking for patients with moderate to severe vision. So the vision should be 612 to 660. So anywhere between kind of middle of the chart to top of the chart to that big letter. Both eyes should be pretty symmetrical. Um, you shouldn't have obviously had any kind of trials or gene therapies or anything like that in the past. Um, you, we, we assess you to see if you've got fluid at the back of the eye, if you've got any other problems in the rest of your body. There's quite a strict criteria. But if you pass that criteria, um, you get randomized into one of three groups. So you could be in the high dose group, the low dose group, or the group that doesn't receive an injection at all, the, the sham group. We recruited, I believe, about five patients so far. And that's because the criteria for this trial has been incredibly tough for patients to meet. And so we've gone back actually to ProQR and we've said to them, look, you're expecting patients to have quite poor vision but to have a really good visual field, those two things don't match up. And the reason that most patients are not getting into this trial is because their visual field is not as full as ProQR want it to be. And so ProQR of actually going back um, and revising their ethics to include patients um, that have a poorer visual field. So if some of you are on the call that may have come for screening already and not passed, you may be well, you may well be getting a call back to say you're now eligible. Um, and for those of you who, who are on the call that do either know that they have a mutation in exon 13 and are interested to hear more or even be screened, do contact us. I'll tell you details at the end. If you think you've got a mutation in the USH2 aging, but you're not sure what it is, again, get in touch. We can help you find out. 
Um, and I, I'm hoping that most of you on this call have a genetic result. But for those of you who don't, please go and get genetic testing because it's vital because of all the trials that I've been mentioning that we know what your mutations are so that we can either give you a gene specific mutate, uh, therapy in the future or maybe a more agnostic one. Uh, I'm happy to take more questions about this um, towards the end. Okay, so the next thing I want to talk to you about is gene editing. Now, uh, again, this is just a concept for you, a, a concept animation for, for you guys to, to listen to. Gene editing for genetic eye diseases. Genetic eye diseases are caused by spelling mistakes in our genetic code, also known as our DNA. These spelling mistakes change the meaning of the genetic instructions. To fix these errors, we use an equivalent of a find and replace function. This is called gene editing, and the tool used is known as CRISPR-Cas9. CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing has two key components. Firstly, a guide to find the spelling mistake. Secondly, molecular scissors that can cut out the region found by the guide. The CRISPR-Cas9 can be delivered to the eye through an injection. It enters the target cell and locates the genetic code. The CRISPR-Cas9 finds the spelling mistake and cuts it out. The correct spelling is reinstated. The cells can then produce healthy protein and work better for longer. Okay, so um, there are some uh, preclinical studies, that means lab-based uh, studies that are underway for editing premature stop codons, um, the, the nonsense mutations uh, in USH2A. There are no clinical studies yet for this, for Usher syndrome. Um, and there is, though, a gene editing trial for a different retinal disease, Leber's congenital amaurosis, caused by a gene called CEP290. And we don't know what the results will be yet of that, but if that works, that's great because it starts to set a precedence and we can then roll that out for, for other patients. But bearing in mind, this is very mutation-specific. So now I'm going to talk about agnostic therapies. So um, therapies where it doesn't matter what gene is causing your condition or what mutation you have. These are based on common disease pathways. When I look at the back of your eyes, you have retinitis pigmentosa. I can see that your rod cells degenerate first, then your cone cells. Uh, I can so so because that that's the same common disease pathway, and so we can try to find treatments that can target that. So one of those areas are drugs, so antioxidants, anti-cell death agents. It could be a gene therapy, and I'm going to talk about optogenetics and rod-derived cone viability factor, and then some stem cell options. So there was a recent trial. Again, it ran from 2012 to 2019. Um, and it basically delivered something called a neuroprotectant. A neuroprotectant is a, a drug that can protect your nerves or your light-sensitive cells at the back of your eye. And so this was um, uh, a trial where 
they had given something called ciliary neurotrophic factor uh, into um, the eyes of patients with early stage retinitis pigmentosa. They recruited 30 patients. It was a phase two clinical trial and it included patients with type two and three ushers. But unfortunately, so far, there'd be no results posted from that. And this is the real problem. That's why I mentioned about clinical trials being, um, in, they're, they're run by industry, by pharmaceutical companies. They really do control what information they let out or don't let out. And it's frustrating because we can't learn from these studies if they don't release you know, information about what happened, what went badly, what went well, you know, what were the parameters. It's a real issue and something that maybe the charities should also be campaigning with to say, look, you know, even if your trials fail, it's really important that you you feed the information back to the scientific community so we don't repeat and make these, these errors in the future. Um, there is a cl current clinical trial using a, a high dose antioxidant called N-acetylcysteine underway in the US, uh, uh, in Australia for RP, and it includes uh, patients with Usher syndrome. Um, and this is a phase one, two trial, so early, due to complete in September next year. Um, they're trying to recruit um, 48 participants, um, 18 years and older. And for those of you who know me, that's why I tell everyone to have lots of fresh fruit and vegetables in your diet, especially the fruit that is red, blue, and black in color, because they are rich in antioxidants and you can eat as much of them as possible. And it will help to get into the bloodstream and neutralize um, those um, charged oxygen molecules that are causing damage in, in the retina. So optogenetics is exciting. So optogenetics is actually a form of gene therapy. So I've got a picture here. Um, don't worry about it too much. It's a bit overcomplicated, to be honest. So I'm going to talk about what happens uh, in the retina. So in, in retinitis pigmentosa, your photoreceptors, your light sensitive cells degenerate. And so essentially you're left with cell layers above that, but that have no connection with the light sensitive cells. So when light enters the eye, they don't have any light sensitive pigment that can convert that light to chemical energy and then send signals. You just have these sort of dormant cells left in, in the back of the eye. So what optogenetics does is it injects a, a virus that holds a gene that encodes for a light sensitive channel. And what happens is, that virus enters those residual cells that are left in the retina that are just dormant and it introduces a light sensitive channel into those remaining cells. So then when a certain wavelength of light enters the eye, it stimulates those light sensitive channels and the patient can begin to send signals down the nerve to the brain and hopefully see. But you're never going to get the resolution that you would have done when you could see fully with your central vision. This is very much a light and possibly navigational level of vision. It's still in an early phase one, two clinical trial. It's active, it's not recruiting at the moment. It's multi-center across the world and is taking adults. And we'll have to wait and see uh, what the outcomes are. 
but this is mainly for patients with advanced disease that we're talking about sort of light perception, perception to light themselves. We're not talking about the patients who still have really good usable central vision. Then there are stem cells, and a lot of my patients ask me about this. So there is, there is promise here, but there's a complexity there about this. So there were two companies, a company called JSite and a company called Reneuron, and they were both running these clinical trials uh, using stem cells. Now, they're not pure stem cells. These are stem cells that have been channeled to start to become early retina cells. So they're called human retinal progenitor cells. JSite uses an intravitreal injection into the jelly of the eye and um, is currently in an active phase two clinical trial where they're injecting six million of these cells into the jelly of the eye, hoping that these cells will integrate into the retina and support the residual cells, releasing you know, the right factors, et cetera, to keep the cells alive and working better. We still don't know whether these cells will actually eventually convert into a photoreceptor. That's a tall order, very, very difficult. It's more of a support system at the moment, but we have to wait and see what's happening. In, in terms of Reneuron, in January, sadly, uh, they decided to halt the development of their retinitis pigmentosa program. They were delivering um, the, the cells via a subretinal injection. And so again, we don't really know why. It almost sounded like it was not financially viable, but it could be that the results showed that the response was not great enough. Injecting stem cells we know is safe, but we're just not sure yet about whether or not they're really effective. And I know they do put press releases and they say things are looking like they've got two more lines of vision, et cetera. But until the, the trial is fully finished and they've analyzed all the results and they've looked at all the standard errors, et cetera, it's always best to wait to see um, what those outcomes are. So I think I might be okay, everyone. Um, I was worried about running over. I, I have run over a bit. I'll, I'll finish in the next 10 minutes. So, so um, Matt and, and everyone else will feel relieved. So how can individuals with Usher syndrome participate in research? Well, first of all, it's really important to ask your local ophthalmologist um, because now there are lots of sites across the UK that are um, sites for international trials. They may be able to refer you more locally. Um, they might have knowledge of what's going on. If you don't feel that they do, you know, there's always the option. I always do this, but you can always contact me directly. And um, I've got my email address. It's m.musagi at ucl.ac.uk. I mean, you can get that from, from the Retina UK guys or Chloe. Um, if any of you are interested in the ProQR trial, please can you contact my fellow? Um, her name is Paulina. She's lovely. Uh, she will call you and she will talk you through what needs to be done. Um, but if you could email her, her email address is p.ocizek at nhs.net. So she's very happy to answer any questions about your mutation or your eligibility. 
again, if you're thinking about genetic testing, because you've not had that yet, um, or you want to come and see us at Moorfields, um, all you need to do is ask your GP to get a referral to see, if you want to see me particularly, just ask them to name me on the referral. I can't, I, I mean, it's honestly, it's painful how even named referrals end up going to sort of a general MR medical retina clinic or a peds ophthalmology clinic. So if you know you've done that, you've made a referral, my name's on it, and you've not got an appointment on a Friday, because <laughs> that's the only day I have my clinics, then send me an email and say, we asked to see you, but I've got an appointment on a Tuesday, and then I can tell the clerks and get that re reassigned for you. So that's how you get to see, see myself and come to Moorfields. There's also an option uh, to register for research opportunities at Moorfields. The system is called Rome. And I'm just there. You can actually go directly to that. If you put that into Google and you put research opportunities at Moorfields, that should come up. But if not, um, some of you would have heard of Gene Vision. This was a website that I created again with the kind funding of Retina UK and our National Institute of Health Research. Um, but if you go on the, the top of, of that um, website to the research tab, first of all, there's a drop down menu. The first title is therapies under research. And you can go to that page and you can read about everything that I've talked to you about today in a lay accessible format. So more information about RNA therapies, CRISPR gene therapy, neuroprotectants. It's all there for you. But the third drop down thing on that um, on that chart is research opportunities at Morfords. And if you click on that, um, it will take you straight there and you can register your interest. That means that if, for example, I'm looking for some Usher patients, I can actually go to Moorfields and say, have you had any patients with Ushers that have registered for any research opportunities? And they will be able to put your name forward. Personally, I wouldn't ever need to do that. So if you've not done that, don't worry. If you've ever come to Moorfields, your name and your gene is recorded on our database. So I will already have searched you, looked at your, your scans and to see if you're eligible. And so we would then make contact with you. But equally, if you ever want to contact us, please do. So just on Gene Vision, this is a great website to get an understanding of your condition, to understand the latest research, any advice, your links to all the charities and support groups and additional information. And so I just, for any of you who've not seen this, please do go to this. We're going to be doing a, a, a new update later this year of, of the whole site for new conditions, up-to-date research, but it's really great. It's a great resource for you. So what can you guys do as a community to help accelerate progress? Well, you know, from my perspective, I really need your help to help push forward to our research. So I cannot um, stress enough how important it is when you, when you guys volunteer to help us with natural history studies, psychosocial research. So when I say natural history studies, what do I mean? Well, it means, for example, allowing us to study you. So you come in, we can look at you, you know, we can undertake scans, check your vision, and then we can then follow you over a period of time and then we can decide right these are the parameters that we need to use in a clinical trial that will show that a treatment is having a difference or not 
The reason that a lot of trials have failed recently is because they haven't used the right, what we call outcome metrics. They haven't used the right measures to show a response to treatment. And that's why natural histories are so important. So if there's ever an opportunity, please put yourself forward. We're actually just about to launch a study where we want to use smartphones to monitor your sight and your behavior in your everyday life and make a comparison of that with the scans and the vision assessments that you have at your one-off visit in the hospital annually because we want to develop a new system whereby we can pick up that you're having a deterioration at home between appointments, that you might need other input, that your sleep isn't very good, you're not walking around as much, you're starting to feel low because of the whole situation and you might need to you know, get in touch with your, your GP or plug into support services earlier. We want to be able to develop algorithms whereby we can monitor treatment. So if, for example, we give you a treatment, we might not pick it up necessarily on your one-off hospital visit, but we might see that you're going out more later in the, the evenings when it's dark, that you're not having to use really bright lights to read, that you're texting more frequently. And so there's lots of different parameters about your social behavior that we want to try to correlate. So we can use this as a tool to monitor you in the long term. And we recently sent out an email asking for uh, teenagers to help us because we want to know that we're not going to, you know, bring their condition to the forefront of their minds at a period where they probably really don't want to be reminded of it. But yet they might actually want to help in a way where they may not actually realize because it's just them using their phone. Um, so so if if you have a call from researchers, please do do offer your support. And we, we might be reaching out for, to some of you to help us with this actual study using um, our smartphones. If we need skin samples, like I showed you, we can grow retinas now from patient's skin. Um, but yeah, things like that really help us. And then be active in patient organizations. Please help them when they're lobbying for research funding, help fundraise. A lot of the work that I showed you today we can't actually move forwards unless we've got, we've got money. And that has been a real stumbling block. Um, you know, it still is. So fundraising is, is really helpful. And then join registries. The UK doesn't have a registry itself. There is a registry in the US um, for Usher syndrome. And, and I know Chloe can tell you more about that. Um, as I said, if you've attended Moorfields ever, there will be a record of you and we always have access to that. Um, and we are actually in the UK looking to, to think about ways where we can adopt um, uh, registers that are run by Public Health England for our patients. And so with that, gosh, I did an hour exactly, there we go. Just to say thank you so much for inviting me to speak. If any of you want to get in touch, you have my email address. Follow me on Twitter. You'll hear loads about what we're doing. Um, thank you to all of our, uh, our funders, our supporters, to my brilliant team for all their hard work. And, and, and thank you. And over to Matt. Thank you, Chloe. Uh, Chloe, thank you, Maria. Um, I think we're going to move over to questions. We have a number of questions that have come in from home. Um, so if anybody does have any more um, questions, please do use the Q&A section on the screen. 
Um, so I'm going to hand straight over to Chloe to, um, to ask questions. Thanks, it's Chloe of Usher Kids UK speaking, and thank you, Maria, um, for your time this evening, but for your expertise and your commitment to our community. Um, my video so you can see me. Uh, thanks so much for the information you've shared. I'll work through these questions and we'll see how we go. Um, we've had a question, if you participate in one trial, does that prevent you from taking part in a future trial? Well, so it depends on the trial that you're going to participate in. If it's something like a viral gene therapy, probably yes. And that's because it's a, a single administration of a virus that then sits in your retina cells permanently. Um, and so if in a trial situation, uh, I think someone would be very hesitant to then give a treatment on top of that because you can't then say whether the effect of the virus is influencing that new trial. If we're talking about you've had, for example, a gene therapy and it didn't work, and then a treatment becomes available on the NHS, then potentially, yes, you could then have that as a treatment, but we'd have to evaluate what it was. You couldn't have viral on top of viral. Um, but, uh, for example, you could have the RNA therapy because it's short acting, it's not permanent, it only acts on the instructions. If you had a drug treatment like atelurin, it has, a, I think it has like a, a 28 day washout period. So after that, it's, it's, there's no residual action of the drug. And so again, your eyes would be naive and ready for the next trial. Um, so it is very dependent on what the trial is really. Thank you. Another question, and what's the difference between a phase 2A and 2B trial? Yeah, I think uh, phase 2B is, is probably more to do with uh, what we call efficacy, so how it's working, whereas 2A is verging more on the safety side still. Um, yeah, that, that, that's basically the, the difference. Okay, thank you. Are there any trials or studies in the UK for Usher 1B that are in the pipeline or globally um, and the participant is aware of the Atsina trial in the US? So uh, not that there is one in the UK at the moment. Um, I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure there is anything else, but I will. I can find that out, and I can I can forward you the answer to that. I I, I usually go have to go through and look through all the trial databases, but not not that I'm aware of. No. Okay, great, thank you, and we can share any of that information via Usher UK and Retin UK afterwards. Thank you. Um, Usher One B is described as being one of the larger of the um, Usher mutations in terms of gene size. But you mentioned that Usher 2A is 16,000 um, and Usher 1B is 7,000. Could you please explain more? Yeah, so if you can imagine your genetic code, it's a string of letters. So your gene is, is composed of a string of letters. And there are only four letters, A, T, G and C. And they're all in a diff different combinations, but they all provide this intricate instruction to make a protein. So anyway, um, the Usher 1B, isn't actually the biggest uh, of the Usher genes. Uh, it's actually one of the smaller ones. Hence, 
I talked to you about the dual AAV therapy that's that's being developed and obviously if that goes well then that will come through um but it's just it, it you know there is there is nothing at the moment um from from that side so um the USH2A gene the gene for USH2C they are all basically 16,000 letters in size USH2C is 19,000 letters the USH1B gene is 7,000 letters. So it's it's actually less than half the size of the type 2 USHA genes. So that's what I mean about K, 1,000. I just abbreviated it. I hope that answers your question. Thank you. Well, one to follow up on that. Um, it's noted that there are more seem to be more studies and trials based on USH2A. Is there a reason for this? Mainly because it's the most commonest gene that causes USHAs overall. Um, and uh, it's, as I said, it, it, I think it causes up to 50% of ushers overall, and it contributes to over 80% of type two ushers. Now, you know, the other thing is that it's all about, again, it's about finance. So it's, if you could find, for example, a treatment for ush 2A, you're going to treat the bulk amount of patients with, with ushers. But also there may just be like especially in America, there are very, very rich philanthropists um, that may want to contribute to, for they might have an individual with USH2A. And so they just give a lot of money. And then what happens is they build a program based on the gene that that individual wants to, to fund. And so at the moment, there has just been a lot of work going into USH2A. Um, there is still other genes, you know, that are being worked on, like the USH, USH1B is, is another big gene that people are focusing on. Um, I, 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 in a way, I feel sorry for some of the, the smaller, less prominent genes um, that, that really haven't, people are really not really focusing on. But what I personally like to do is think about technologies that can then be applied to those genes. So when I think that the non-viral gene therapy works nicely, even, even um, the nonsense suppression, although it works on nonsense mutations, it's not gene specific. So if you had a nonsense mutation in MYA7A or CDH23 or another gene, it, it, it would still work on those. I didn't say that in the talk, I didn't make that clear, but it would work on it. So it's not gene specific, it's mutation specific. Thank you. Um, another question, how many injections do you see non-viral gene therapy needing? Would it be single or multiple? So we'd hope single, but the beauty of it is because there's no viral components, we could give more. We wouldn't expect there to be that immune reaction. That's the whole point of um, the viral vectors is that, you're almost, it's like you're sensitizing the eye, like it, like an immunization. So you give it, you give your immunization, and then if you get the infection, then it, your body will fight the response. We're just not sure if we gave a second injection of a virus, whether the eye would then attack itself. Hence, it's always been kept as a single administration. But with this, you could do multiple. It definitely, from the work that we've done so far, the fact that we get good expression, even in the fish. I know it's scanty and there are reasons for that. Um, but with the mouse up to 12 months, which would mean that you really wouldn't need injections very often. It's not like with the RNA therapy that's short acting. Brilliant. Thank you. And just to clarify on the non-viral gene therapy, is that aimed at being mutation agnostic? No, it's going to be 
well so it could be so you could put the optogenetic light sensitive channel in there I didn't mention rod derived cone viability factor. I knew I would forget something. <laughs> okay, I'm going to save some stuff for next time, right? So there are uh, agnostic genes you could put in, but the point is what I would like to see in the future is that we have a really good delivery cassette and a way that we know that, okay, we can slot in this gene. We know how to get it into the retina, like, Mr. X comes along with this gene mutation, right? You're going to have this gene, it slots in and we give you that gene therapy. But we're, we're still a long way from that. But yeah, that's what I would hope. Um, can I just jump in for a second? I'm wondering, Maria, if the question means, does it matter what mutation you have? In oh, no, it doesn't matter. Oh, no, it doesn't matter what mutation. Thank Just you. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's what it meant. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, I think that's what it did mean. Mutation agnostic. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for jumping in, Kate. Um, a couple of questions about specific trials. The JSITE trial that you mentioned in Australia, um, is that a nonsense suppression therapy? Oh, no. So that's a um, I think you've just got that slightly wrong. So the, the trial in Australia is an antioxidant trial. So that's the one where you can have all the red, black and blue fruit while we're waiting for the results. Um, I hope that answers the question. <laughs> yeah. It's the JSITE trial was the um, intravitreal injection of the human retinal progenitor cells. Okay, brilliant. Well, feel free, whoever added that question, if they'd like to add a follow up, feel free to add it to the chat. Um, and in relation to the sparing vision drugs in Paris, the antioxidant tablet treatment, what stage are they at? Again, another specific. I don't know. I'd, I'd have to look that up specifically for you. Um, I'll just jump in quickly. So that one, as far as I'm aware, is not an antioxidant tablet. It is um, a rod cone vi viability factor gene therapy. Oh, oh so that's the rod derived. Cone yeah, I think, and it, I, as far as I'm aware, it's a gene therapy approach. So it would involve uh, an injection rather than a, anything oral. So. OK, let me just talk about that. I don't know because I don't know about the a lot of the trade names. I get confused with all of those. So for those of you who are thinking, what is this rod derived cone viability factor? So that the basis of this is at the back of your retina, you have your rods and your cones. Right. So your rods release something called rod derived cone viability factor. I like to call it like a hormone. Um, it, it basically the rods release this and the cones take it up and it allows them to uptake glucose and sugars so that it can produce energy and work better for longer. So in RP, when your rods die off, they're not releasing this factor anymore. So your cones don't uptake it and then therefore they can't uptake those glucose and sugars and they starve to death and that causes them to obviously degenerate. So what they're doing in Paris is that they're, they're using a gene therapy, a virus to deliver that rod derived cone viability factor back to the retina. So even if you've got cones, it will produce this factor and allow them to uptake glucose and work better. And I don't know the name or whatever, but it's a very early phase still. We're talking about phase one, two, if anything. 
Thanks, Maria. If um, a family has a child who's one year old and they're currently at GOSH being seen there, will he still be identified for studies or should they sign him up um, to the Rome uh, database that you mentioned? So, I mean, I would still sign him up if you're interested, because it's not just for adults. It can be for children, for parents, you know, so I would sign him up. Um, I work really closely with Rob Henderson. So when I have these studies, I do tend to also let he knows so he can also search his database and let me know. And I, and I work at GOSH, too. So um, but yeah, I, I would sign him up to Rome. That's great to know. Thank you, Maria. And just following on a similar question, as you know your patient's conditions, would you contact them if you saw a trial happening in another part of the world that was relevant for them? So I would like to say yes, <laughs> but uh, it's really difficult because I now have lots and lots of patients and I would then be spending a lot of time uh, doing that. So I, I would just advise everyone really to use Gene Vision. Uh, stay in touch. So that again, I didn't put it on, but clinicaltrials.gov is, is pretty good. But with the caveat that some of the trials on there are not always ethically sound. So it's really important that you ask your ophthalmologist first whether or not this trial is worth, you know, getting involved in or contacting. So I'm always really happy for people to email me and say, I've seen this trial do you think this would be suitable for me? Um, and usually when I see my patients in clinic, I usually tell them what's going on. That's how I do it. So when I see them in, in clinic is when they, they will get an update for me. But it would be hard for me to just send out emails unless I, I mean, you know, the other thing is we've got our NHS. So it's, it's again, it's waiting for those treatments to get on the NHS so that you don't have to travel across the world um, if a treatment is available, hopefully in the US, it will be available in the UK. That's what we hope. Um, and, and there's no restriction to you guys going to other countries to get involved in trials. But just to say that every trial has its own criteria and that every country will have their pool of patients. And it's only the really, really rare conditions where they would maybe accept patients from abroad. But there's, it's always worth emailing the organisers and just saying, hi, could you send me more information and, and just having a relationship and finding out where things are going. Thank you, Maria. One question that was submitted in advance um, precedes another we've had in the chat. So I'll ask this one first. If an individual has one known mutation and one of unknown significance when they have their genetic test results, will they be unable or able to participate in gene-based therapy? Oh, I'm having this problem right now. So I've got this lovely uh, patient with USH2A. He's got one of the exon 13 mutations and a second mutation, which is a variant of uncertain significance. And the labs just will not change their mind. Um, and I'm now like thinking, gosh, what should I do to the point of, should I take a skin biopsy and check to see if, you know, it's not working, but all of that is without funding. It's really difficult. Um, these are the kind of things, I mean, they don't, they don't cost huge amounts, but how, how can you do it if you don't? Um, <clears throat> it's difficult, isn't it? Um, 
all I would say is that the labs do tend to run reports over and over. So where they have patients that what we, we call are unsolved, i.e. they might have one mutation that causes the condition, the other one they're not sure about, every so often they will run through and see if anything's changed. But the criteria, it's difficult. It could be that it's just not disease causing or they just haven't got enough evidence. And that evidence may be that that's the only person in the world with that mutation that's been recorded. And so they're waiting for a second family, unrelated one, to find it. Um, or we need to do what we call functional studies, which is like taking cells and actually seeing if the mutation is affecting the protein or the cells, etc. Um, but as I said, you would have to have research funding for that. So it's really tricky. Um, there was that case uh, of, of Leo in with RP65, if you ever saw the BBC documentary, he actually, he had one mutation which was pathogenic and the other one was a variant of uncertain significance, but his features were absolutely characteristic of RP65 disease. And so all the specialists got together and basically said, this is so characteristic, we have to classify this as disease causing because then he can access the gene therapy but it's not an individual it's not a decision that's taken lightly and you have to have a lot of specialists to input into that great thank you for that and it does actually answer the second question related to that um we have a family here who've had um originally had a deafness diagnosis and had an initial assessment through ophthalmology but were discharged at 17 months um she suspect the child is suspected to have with myo7a um, type 1b but they don't have a referral now to ophthalmology until February of next year, 2023. Um, the little girl is 27 months now, and they wonder how regularly um, she should be having the RP checked and whether to wait until next February. So, uh, you know, it's where, well, okay, yeah, we don't know where they are. <laughs> so. The ophthalmology, it was Denmark Hill, so, um, so London-based. Okay, I mean, Mm, I mean, I would get a referral to Moorfields or Great Ormond Street. <laughs> Just I'd be under a system that looks after children like that. So Denmark Hill are not, uh, you know, their peds are not genetic specialists. They don't have that expertise. So um, it's fine to keep the regular check. OK, that's absolutely fine. But you need to be in a system. So what, what I do with my clinics is that I have... Um, I see my patients, the children, once a year, but they need to be seen by their local services in between then for their regular vision checks, for their glasses prescriptions, check they're not getting a squint or anything. And then if you want to extend my appointments by two years or whatever, that's fine, but you do need that regular local follow-up. So um, I would just get your GP just to refer you to see me in my peds clinic and then uh, we can sort out the rest. Thank you, Maria, that ever-growing list for you. Um, uh, someone has asked, when choosing a trial to be involved in, it seems very based on criteria. Is there ever a recommendation for trial depending on what stage of vision loss someone is at? Um, I, they're aware that we're not quite yet there at having a menu of options, but wondered if patients are empowered in that way um, to look at trials in, in relation to where their vision's up to. Yeah, so I mean, the problem is, is that they need to reduce all forms of variability in the trial, hence they have such strict criteria. The, the ProQR trial actually did have an arm for 
patients with better vision and they went to continue with the patients with the more advanced vision which you know usually they normally have the patients with the better vision <laughs> so but anyway um it's a little bit out of our control as i said this is quite uh pharmaceutical driven so um there are trials like the optogenetic trials the retinal prosthetic trials um they were all looking for patients with really, really poor vision. So it's not always the situation by which you have to have really good central vision. Each trial is different. If you do use clinicaltrials.gov, you can go into the trial. So you can just search your gene or your condition. It will bring up a, a very extensive list. But if you clicked on each one and you went to eligibility criteria, it usually has the level of vision they're looking for, the age of the person, and then the other criteria. So um, I think it's just variable. Thank you. A couple of questions um, that were submitted in advance. One is that um, some people with Usher syndrome seem to be really light sensitive and others aren't. Does that tell us anything about the prognosis um, or anything about how their condition is expressed? No, not that I'm aware of. I mean, it could be advanced disease. I mean, everyone's different. I mean, you get generally people that prefer wearing sunglasses all the time, others who don't. So uh, I'm I, not that I'm aware of. Photosensitivity is not something that um, I gauge as a prognostic indicator. Thank you. Another one around um, whether photography flashlights are harmful for someone who has RP as a result of Usher syndrome. Um, this particular family has a child who does some modeling and the parents concerned about that harm that could be done. So I don't think normal photography flashlights are, are harmful. Um, it's usually blue light. So it's that autofluorescence imaging that you have when you come to clinic, that big bright blue white flash of light, that's usually can, can be quite harmful. And Actually, the blue light that comes out of screens, I know there's not much evidence base, but that's why, again, one of the little things that I always just say, get a blue light screen protector because um, you just we just don't know enough yet. But all I would say is that quite a lot of us do kind of face the screens for long periods of time and hold it quite close to us. So um, but no, I think the the flash normal flash is fine. Thank you. Um, a few questions just to finish now. We're doing well on time. Uh, one um, person would love to know why you went down this route <laughs> in your career. Oh, there is there are so many reasons. But I would just say for when I was training, um, I would see the patients that had been seen in other parts of the country and just been given the worst news in the worst possible way. So a lot of patients were told that they've got, a, you know, a genetic condition. They were going to go blind that there was nothing that could be done. People, you know, even at Moorfields, you know, not so long ago, they were told by some of the great professors that, well, it doesn't matter, you don't need to work or drive because you're a woman, you know, and it's then, you know, you just, you better hope that your husband will look after you, you know, because you're going to go blind. And I mean, it's just terrible, terrible stuff that was said. Um, and, you know, again, I very distinctly remember, I'm going to share this story with you because I, it really upset me. It was actually after Retina UK Day. I, I spoke in Brighton and a family came up and said, can we come and see you? They came to see me at Moorfields. They were in their 60s. There was a brother and sister. And um, 
I they'd never had genetic testing. We did it all. They were found to have ushers, usher 2A, I think. The, the brother said to me uh, when I gave him his result back, he asked me, could I have had children? And I said, yeah, of course you could have. And he goes, because I was told 40 years ago not to have children because my children would get this condition and we, you know, it would not be the right thing to do. And actually, you know, so he made life choices never to find a partner because he didn't want to disappoint the partner that he couldn't have children. So he just lived a life on his own never had children, never had a partner. And I just felt so sad for him because we all know that Usher syndrome is a recessive disease, which means that yes, you'll pass, you've got no choice, an individual will pass a bad copy of the gene. But you know, in most cases, as long as the partner is unaffected and doesn't have a history of, of a similar condition, their children will be carriers like that individual's parents, they will not have the condition. But, you know, all of this, you know, all of this was coming to me and I just felt like, you know, I, I, I'm driven enough. I want to make a difference. I've trained both from a scientific and a clinical point of view that I can just interlink this and try to make, you know, I can just try if I might not succeed, but I can try. Um, so that's, yeah, to cut a long story short. Wow. <laughs> And I love I all of you. I love all of you. And I would do everything that I possibly can to help. So um, it's important to just have so much faith and hope because, you know, like even when I was writing this, there's just so much going on. There will be something that's going to help in the future. That's one of the, the final questions, actually, is it, what's your prediction um, or how optimistic are you if you think ahead to the next 10, 20, 30 years for our community? Oh, I'm hugely optimistic. I mean, you know, even 10 years ago, we were barely doing genetic testing. Um, now, you know, we do whole genome sequencing on the NHS. We have a retinal gene therapy on the NHS. We've got a multitude of trials and it's not just gene specific. It's those agnostic ones I talked about. So, you know, it, it may not like, you know, for those who've lost vision, we don't yet know how to reverse that. For those who have got vision still, you know, ushers is, you know, it's one of the conditions that we've got time to, to work on. And it, it may be something that it's phased. We might be able to halt it a little bit. Things might progress. We might be able to find another therapy in the future. But the key thing is, is just to be hugely positive and just, you know, get involved in events like this. Lobby, as I mentioned, you know, fundraise, because, you know, I hate to say it, but if we could, if I had access to as much money as I could, we would be pounding forwards um, on so many levels. So yeah, we just, we've just got to keep pushing forwards. Thank you. And we love having you in our corner. So <laughs> we appreciate you trying um, and the impact that you have. I'm going to um, hand over now to Retina UK because I know that they want to just share um, some information about what they do. Just beforehand, if any families are on this call and have a child of any age and would like to receive information or support from Usher Kids UK, I just encourage you to get in touch. Info at usherkidsuk.com. Um, we look forward to hearing from you. I'll hand over to Kate now at Retina UK. Thank you, Chloe, and thank you so much, Maria, for such an excellent um, 
overview of everything i you packed it all in in the end you were worried about it but it was very very good um my name's kate i'm the uh, research development manager at retina uk just want to quickly tell you a little bit about what we do and how we fit in so we are a national charity dedicated to providing information and support for families affected by any inherited retinal condition um, including usher families um, as well as funding research on these conditions um, occasionally we fund projects that are specifically focused on ushers, just like Maria's non-viral vector project, um, but many of the projects um, that we fund, while they happen to be focused on a particular condition or gene, their outcomes very often have wider relevance anyway. So, for example, Maria, as she said, has the USH2A gene as her primary target for that particular project. But the technology will be very relevant to other conditions involving large genes. Conversely, for example, we're currently funding a PhD student um, at Oxford to look at Stargardt disease. She's focusing on Stargardt disease gene, but that's another very big gene. And she's looking at gene editing um, and that down the line, as Maria mentioned, that might be relevant to ushers. Um, in the past, we've funded researchers who've contributed to the development of the ProQR technology, and that's obviously, uh, that was originally developed for LCA, the other condition that Maria mentioned, but obviously now that's being used for ushers. So when you hear about projects that don't mention ushers, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that the findings won't be relevant. Um, our research activity does extend beyond funding. In particular, we're very keen to facilitate engagement between our community of families and researchers and the pharmaceutical industry. Um, for example, learning about your experiences can help companies build, build a picture of the benefits or the potential benefits of their treatments when they're trying to get the treatment licensed or get it paid for by the NHS. Um, Retina UK and the Usher Kids community um, also have a direct role to play here. Um, we will generally be asked by NICE, uh, which makes the funding decisions, to contribute um, to the process of assessing the cost-benefit balance of a new treatment. So we were involved in this with Luxterna. Um, we relied very heavily for Luxterna on data from a comprehensive insight survey that we'd carried out. And this very clear picture of the wider challenges of living with inherited sight loss that came from our community um, really does seem to have made a positive difference to the outcome. So um, please do consider engaging with us um, if you feel able to do so. Um, thank you very much. Matt, do you want to? I'm just back now. Technology is not on my side this evening. Um, a huge, huge thank you to Maria, Kate, Chloe for this evening's um, session. And thank you as well to Jackie and Sarah, who have been our wonderful BSL interpreters this evening. Um, so just to let you know what will happen after um, today's uh, webinar, we will, um, just over the next couple of days, send you a, um, an email which will have information on how you can um, re-watch Maria's um, presentation from this evening and how you can book onto any other events that Retina UK are, are holding. Uh, we'll also be seeking your feedback um, on today's session. And it's so, so important that we get your feedback. 
as it enables us to um, develop our webinars and any other services and such like that we do deliver. Um, and as Maria and uh, Kate have said, fundraising is such an important um, way of supporting not only our services, but also the research that um, Maria and other researchers are doing. So please do consider engaging in, um, in some fundraising activities, um, whether it be through Retina UK, through uh, Usher Kids UK, or directly with Maria and her team. So thank you ever so much for joining us. And we bid you a good night. Thank you very much.